there is another mind other than the partisan mind, other than the us versus them mind. And this is the mind of Christ. Welcome, everybody, on this uh, beautiful October, late October evening to George Fox University. I'm Joseph Clare. I'm the dean of the uh, Cultural Enterprise here, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this evening event with Curtis Chang, When Politics Strain Relationships. Let me uh, just say a word about the impetus for this event and also a word about Curtis, and then we'll get underway. One of the things that we hope for our students who come through George Fox University in a Christian liberal arts atmosphere is that they'll wrestle with the deep perennial questions um, and become educated citizens through our education that we provide. Part of what that means for us as Christians is to be those who are informed uh, about the relationship between our Christian faith and our political affiliation and identity. This is one of those vexing but beautiful questions that we're left with in the New Testament. What is the right relationship between Christian faith and political life? What is the right relationship between the Christian community of the church and government or state? The New Testament seems to give us handholds and clues, but nothing conclusive. Jesus is clearly presented as the new King David of true Israel, the leader of another kingdom who requires ultimate lordship over his followers. And yet his kingdom is not of this world, he says. His kingdom is here, but it is not yet. And that we are told ultimately to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render unto God the things that are God's, to pray for those in governing authority. When you look to church history, you also find a wide array of responses to this question of the relationship between Christian faith and politics. In the early stages of the early church, they're the persecuted minority on the margins who don't seem to have anything to do with Caesar or the Roman Empire. After Constantine, we move into the phase of Christendom, where there is an almost absorption between state and church. And now in this modern period of political liberalism, we think of church and state as neatly separate, but overlapping in unusual ways. Two cities, two kingdoms, how do these things relate? Tonight, Curtis Chang is gonna unravel all of this for us and <laughs> conclusively solve this riddle. <laughs> now, it's a big preamble to say that that's the backdrop in which we as American Christians, many of us need to wrestle with these questions of red and blue and Democratic and Republican is the much broader, longer conversation with scripture over time as the people of God. And I really appreciate the work that Curtis Chang and his co-pilot on the Good Faith podcast, David French was here exactly now a year ago, um, bring to this. So Curtis, thank you for coming. Curtis is someone who straddles the world's of church and politics, of secular and sacred. He's a management consultant uh, with Consulting Within Reach, which he founded, which has won a White House Award for Social Innovation. He's also on faculty at American University in DC teaching strategic planning. He's a theologian um, on attachment with Duke Divinity School and Fuller Theological Seminary. He's had 
experience in the secular world of San Jose consultancy, but also in, in the founding of a church with a group um, in San Jose, an evangelical covenant church called The River, in which he became senior pastor and is still a member now that even though he's not the senior pastor. He was on InterVarsity Christian Fellowship staff. He's the author of a book called Engaging Unbelief, a captivating strategy from Augustine and Aquinas. And uh, we said earlier, it's not often you hear the, the words captivating and Aquinas in the same sentence, but somehow. He's done a lot of work um, in relationship to Christians and the question of the vaccine, founding Christians and the vaccine, a national campaign for Christians to think more deeply about vaccination. Again, the co-host with David French, the Good Faith Podcast, which is now ranked in top 1% of all podcasts. Pretty impressive. Uh, I heard someone say you're their morning walking partner on the podcast. Yeah, so that Eloise, yeah. A lot of people listened to you when they heard your voice. It was like, oh, the, the age of the podcast. Curtis's uh, undergrad uh, degrees from Harvard University. He's married with two kids living in San Jose. He's an avid pickleballer fantasy baseball aficionado, and is severely addicted to dark chocolate. Curtis, thank you for being here at George Fox this evening. Please welcome Curtis Chang. Thank you. And speaking of dark chocolate, there are some amazing brownies over there. So I will not be insulted if in the middle of my lecture you need to go and grab some refreshments. Um, my topic for today is when politics strain relationships. And I'm going to begin by telling you two stories of how politics strained two of my relationships. Now, as soon as I tell you these stories, uh, you are either going to try to discern or actually discern my politics, right? So I'm just gonna get that out of the way and just like play my, my hand, all right? So I am politically heterodox in the sense that I, I am conservative on some things, on some social and some fiscal issues. You probably would have labeled me a conservative, I guess, especially um, in today's environment. Um, on other issues, I consider myself quite progressive, racial issue, climate change, but I don't fit neatly in, in sort of any one camp, but, if you have to identify me, if you, you put a gun to my head, you must choose on the spectrum, left and right, where are you? I don't know. Um, like, I guess, center left-ish? Um, so that's the best I can do for you. Especially, I'm from the Bay Area, so look, your politics are a reflection of where you live in the culture. I've lived in the Bay Area, you know, like Portland, one of the most progressive areas in the country. I'm sure that's shaped me, okay? So that's where I'm coming from. Um, but I want to tell you, my, but I'm not talking here really to talk about politics. I'm here to talk about when politics strain relationships, okay? So I, the stories I'm telling you are not about politics. In fact, you can, you can substitute the stories I'm going to tell for a different politics, but it will discern the same relational, I think, perhaps, the same relational dynamics. This is, this is a talk about relationships. Here's the first story, and this is a story of, of one kind of relationship. Sociologists, by the way, describe relationships in two categories, loose ties and strong ties. So loose ties are relationships that, you, that are real relationships you have, but they're loose. They're the person, you may not even know their name, but you see on the basketball court, in class, or on social media. Right? They're kind of, but you're not in active, tight relationship with them. And then there are tight tight ties, tight relationships, right? They're the, your family, your friends, people that you're very close to. 
both socio sociologists say both relationships are actually very important to human thriving. We need actually both loose and tight relationships. It's not like you know, only one matters. Okay. So I have two stories for you, one about a loose politics straining a loose relationship, and then the second politics straining a tight relationship. So let me start with the first one, the loose relationship. Uh, the story is from this summer, my family and I, this is, um, I have an older daughter who wasn't with us, but uh, my younger daughter and my wife uh, went and spent a vacation in Montreal. So out of the country uh, for a long time, long tiring trip, and we flew back to San Jose. And if you've ever had international travel, and I'm calling Canada international, um, uh, you come back after a long trip and you just, just landing and touching ground in your home city, you get just kind of, kind of a, ah, a sense of safety and, and relief and not having to navigate strange, uh, Canada's not that strange, but if you've had Putin, you'll know that it's quite strange. But you know, it's like a different culture, but you're, you're back home, you're safe, you're secure. Uh, we do, we, we call a lift, right, uh, to get home from the airport to home. And we're sitting in, uh, in the uh, lobby area, waiting for the lift to come. And finally, we see our car. And oh, it's a Prius. Okay, so it's a Prius pulls up. And then uh, the door opens on the driver's seat. And I then I'm looking at the driver. And it's a man. I can tell it's a man. Okay. Um, I can't tell if he's bald or not, but he, he, cause he's wearing a hat, but he's, he's got a beard on. So he, and it's a, there's like flecks of gray in the beard. So it's kind of an older man. I'm guessing 50 ish or so, something like that. As he comes around the car, uh, he's wearing flannel with a Patagonia sort of, uh, vest, like something like what you're wearing. You look exactly, were, did you pick me up? Did you pick me up at San Jose a few weeks ago? <laughs> um, uh, and so I'm, I'm seeing all these things, okay? And then I see the hat. That is, it's a cap. It's a MAGA cap. It says, make America great again. Let me tell you what happens. My, I can just tell my family, my wife and my daughter, and this is going to be revealing, again, my political sort of orientation, but you can substitute this in a different orientation if you want. We freeze up. We're like, like there's, I can feel my stomach tightening. Um, we get all rigid. Uh, we get kind of awkward. Uh, and and we're, we're, I think, nobody's saying anything, but I think we're all thinking, should we get into this car? Um, and so we're just like this, we're kind of like doing this. And then like, but we're all, we, we're just kind of like in sort of catatonic state. Um, and so we sort of get in the car. The man's like, welcome, thanks. You know, uh, you know where are you coming from? And no, none of none, three of us wants to say anything, right? We're just like looking at each other, and we're—you can just tell when your family is, you know, like anxious, right? So, uh, um, and uh, he says, so "Where are you coming from?" And finally, uh, my wife says, "You know, um, Montreal." And I almost mutter under my breath, "But we're here on a legal passport." Um, <laughs> and and then and then says, "Well, what did you do there?" Sightseeing. Uh, uh, did you have a good time? Yes. Like, so we're just giving like one-word answers, um, very, very uh, non-communicative, non-responsive. And I think he finally picks up. We're not getting given much. Uh, and I'm just, uh, and my wife, uh, my daughter, who's uh, 18 years old, very progressive, um, 
is like constantly doing this to me, like she's trying to catch my eye, and I'm, I'm trying to avoid her eye because I don't know what to do, um, and I'm like, I don't know how I'm feeling, and I'm feeling very, feeling very strange, and we're all feeling strange. Um, and so the driver finally uh, kind of picks up the cue that we're non-responsive and flips on, moves to flip on the radio. Uh, and I'm like bracing myself for some very conservative talk show that is going to drive my daughter nuts. And, I, and so I'm like, oh my God, this is not going to go well, right? Do you know what comes out of the radio? Exactly. It's Christian worship music, right? Love, like the songs that we actually like recognize, that like we sing at our church, right? And I'm like, I, I, what am I supposed to feel now? Okay, that's the first story, loose tie relationship. Second story, my mom, mom's 82 years old. Okay, so my dad passed away six years ago, um, and she's been alone since then. Uh, she's a thriving, still vibrant woman. Uh, she, we talk on the phone, and then about th three years ago, uh, I got a call from my mom, and she kind of in a kind of a giddy schoolgirlish kind of voice tells me she started dating someone, right? Like, so, you know, my, my, my mom and dad were married for like 50 years and, you know, only marriage. And I'm like, okay. Um, so it's like, his name's Peter. He's 87. Um, uh, he's also Chinese. Uh, they talk every night on the phone. They just, and I'm like, okay, I, I don't know what to think, but that's nice, mom. I'm like, okay, right. So hang up um, now. If you've ever, I have two older sisters. You know what you do after you get a call like that? <laughs> you call up the other siblings, <laughs> uh, and so we get on a call, uh, we get on a group call, and we're like trading notes, right? <laughs> um, and if you've ever been in this experience, if you're old enough that. You're to this where your your you know parents or your one of your parents is thinking about remarriage. It's a very strange experience for a child um, because really at an existential level you're like, are we going to have to welcome somebody into into our little circle <laughs> like that, a, the, a stranger into our circle? And so we're trading notes over the phone about him and like mom seems happy, seems like a really nice guy, um, and then. My uh, middle sister, who actually had, was, is the best at intel gathering, um, says, well, um, you know, you know he's not a Christian. I'm like, okay. Uh, and my mom is a believer. Uh, and I'm like, well, okay, I mean, you know, that wouldn't be my ideal, but I, I, I think it's okay. My older sister um, who, you know, between us here, a little more legalistic than I am, um, she's like, no, she should not be yoked to an unbeliever, right? So I'm like, well, okay, sure, but, you know, let's think pastorally here. That passage, Second Corinthians, Paul's writing into a time when people are getting married at like 13 and 14. They have the whole lives ahead of them, and that, that you could actually, if you're yoked to an unbeliever over the whole span of that life, you could actually get sort of taken off course from your faith, and he's warning against that. My mom is 82 years old, like, I don't think she has that much time left to be get to get taken off. Like you know, it's I don't think it's that big of a deal. I think we exercise some pastoral discretion here. Um, you know, so we're debating like how much should the, his his Christian identity or non-Christian identity be a factor here, right? Um, so we talk about this for a while, 
And, and, but, and I'm really trying to make the case, I think we really should be welcoming here, and I don't think we should be so rigid. Um, and he's makes, he seems like a great guy. They talk every night. He's like, help, my mom's happy. They're, they're, they're thinking about going on trips together. You know, I think we should make some room for that and welcome him into our circle. Then my middle sister, who was really good at intel gathering, says, and he voted for Trump. And I'm like, he's out. <laughs> no, we need to throw our body in front of this relationship right away. Okay, that was my immediate reaction. Okay. Um, now again, in both of my stories, if you share a different politics, you can substitute a different politics for a different relational dynamics. You're a rep white Republican flying into Eastern Washington and you're picked up by somebody wearing a BLM hat, right? Just think of it that way, right? Or you find out your mom uh, is dating a Biden voter, right? My guess is some of you might have something analogous to the reaction that I had in either direction, right? This is how much politics is straining our relationships, whether loose or tight. Okay. Let me just ask, give me a show of hands, that loose relationship that's going around, somebody that you, you sort of just know from a, some of a distance, have you, in the last three months, had any reaction to somebody sort of similar to the, my reaction to my Uber driver? Just a show of hands. Okay, right, a lot of us, almost, almost every one of us. Um, how many of you had a, have a close friend or family member, either immediate family or extended family member, who you, whose rela your relationship with that person has been strained kind of in the same way that I was describing with my mom? Okay, essentially, like almost everybody, right? Uh, or at least 80%, it sounds like, of the room. Keep your hands up if you just rose your hands at the last question, the close relationship, okay? Keep your hands up if that person was also a Christian. Most, most of us stand up, right? What do we do with that? It's the same question I faced with the Uber driver. It's the same question I faced with my mom's boyfriend, right? What does that mean? What do, how, do we, how does our faith intersect with the ways that politics are straining our relationships? I'm going to do something that I, I, I know this is sort of weird in a lecture, but I think it's helpful for us to just articulate kind of the strain of that relation of those relationships. So I'm going to ask you to do if just bear with me, okay? A, a two-minute exercise, which is I want you to just find somebody else. Like if you're sitting in a row by yourself, turn and find somebody else. But if you can pair up into like a pair, or or, or if you need to triple up or whatever, and just narrate that relationship. You don't even narrate the politics involved. Just narrate what's happening in that relationship and what do you feel in that relationship? Why do you feel the relational strains? Try to describe the feelings that's happening in that relationship. I don't really care about the politics, okay? Does that make sense? So just take turns, just do one minute, describe that. So you don't have to go into just describe it for a minute and then switch and have the other person describe that, those relational dynamics, relational feelings. You know, when I do this, um, I always like to just kind of, you know, eavesdrop <laughs> a little. And it's always a very poignant uh, experience for me because I hear, I don't even hear all the words. I can hear in the hushed tones the struggle, the sense of pain, the sense of confusion and, and loss that is in the room. Right? 
and because we're losing something of these relationships that we really care about. So what is going on? Now, when I said this, this, this lecture was when politics strain relationship, it wasn't technically accurate. So I don't think politics is straining our relationships. It is what I would call, and what, what sociologists now call, the partisan mind. It's the partisan mind that's straining your relationship. We've always had politics, right? And politics is not itself problematic. The partisan mind is. What is the partisan mind? Well, the partisan mind is that deep mind reaction, something that's deeply embedded in our mind that is what governed my reaction in both of those stories that I told you. And when we think about the partisan mind, it's composed of two things. One, that the overriding identity is your partisan identification. That is what overrides everything else. That's the first part of the partisan mind. So again, think of when that Uber driver pulled up, I did not identify that person primarily by the fact that he was a Prius driver of all things, right? Or that he wore flannel, or that he was male or middle-aged. That, that did not actually rise to who my identification was. What was it? It was his partisan identity, right? There's no logical reason for why out of all of those identity marking characteristics, I should seize on that one, but my mind did, instinctively, re reflexively, right? That's the partisan mind. So it's marked by that the defining identity that we evaluate, we identify other people is their partisan identification. That's the first part of the partisan mind. The second part of the partisan mind is, it is us versus them. Right? That's the partisan mind, is that we view reality right, through it, us versus them, and our mind immediately slips into that. So that uh, the us of my family cannot include Peter, this, this new person, right? Because he's a, he's a them, right? So it's us versus them, and we can't, we can't let him in, we can't let them into us, right? It's us versus them, them and them is a threat. So that's the partisan mind. We overridingly so focus in on the partisan uh, identity as the overriding identity above all else. And secondly, that becomes the basis of an us versus them instinctive reaction. All right. That's the partisan mind. And this partisan mind uh, has always been with us, but uh, is especially powerful now for some reasons. But we need to recognize that it's powerful because in some ways it is a deep part of what, what, what theologically we would call human fallenness. Right? It's actually, and right, the nature of the fall is that it's, it's something that is not just we did something wrong morally or ethically, but there's something actually like broken inside our very being, such that, like, I, such that I would react that way such vis with viscerally and instinctively. Something is deeply embedded in my mind as a human being, right? That, that, and so what is that? Well, what that is, is um, one of, a help, very helpful explanation is from the field of social psychology. And I think there's like a social, there's somebody in the, you, you're, okay. Um, so social psychologists have long studied like what forms and what goes into how our minds are wired, especially at the subconscious, reflexive, visceral level, right? Um, 
And, and it's kind of a window into like our human fleshiness because it's so deeply wired. And the way they describe this is, um, look, human, the human mind what emerged out of like millions and millions of years of existing as hunter-gatherers out in the savannah, right? That's, that, that, you know, if you, if you accept the human history by that account, that's actually where we spent, have spent most of our times. And our minds have been shaped, are deeply wired and conditioned to be, to, for that existence on, as hunter-gatherers traveling in the savannah. Now, what do you need to do to survive as a human being out in the plains, as a hunter-gatherer? Well, one is you need to find a place around the campfire. Okay? You need an us because it is very hard to survive by yourself out in the savannah or out in the wilderness, right? If you get hurt and there's nobody there to take care of you, you're dead, right? If you didn't hunt uh, successfully for a few days in a row, you're starving, right? You need an us. You need at the night, at nighttime, when the hyenas are howling off in the distance, you want to gather around a campfire around an us. And so we think that is how we survive. So another way to put it is we have a deep need for belonging, to find a tribe that we belong to. Because our brains are just reflexively wired that way. And we are deeply wired to look for cues in sort of, you think of the same way that, that an, our, our ancestors around the fire were like looking around, what do I do to keep my place in the campfire? <laughs> like, what do, like, you know, how do I eat? How do I, like, what do, how do I behave? How do I belong so that I don't lose my place here? Right? We're deeply wired for that. And we'll look for cues. We'll look for cues for how do you, what is the us, right? And so what the partisan mind has essentially like hijacked this deep need for belonging and said, you know what, how you belong is you actually identify with, by these partisan identifying markers, right? This is, and, and, and it, it's not logical. It's actually not logical. You can code it, the forever belonging, in sort of completely illogical ways, right? So I did a lot of work on trying to persuade evangelical Christians to take the COVID vaccine. Why did I need to do that? You, you would not, there's no logical reason for that. Before COVID, 70% of American evangelicals supported mandatory vaccination for measles, rumps, rupella. 70% supported mandatory vaccination. So what flipped? Well, the vaccine got coded as, okay, that, there's a partisan code. That's a mark of belonging, right? Of, if you don't take the vaccine or you're, you're suspicious or, or, or reject it, that's now it, has, it got coded uh, through, through basically once the, the, the pandemic got coded a certain way, it, it certainly became like, okay, this is, about, this is part of the team red uniform. Okay. Um, and so that's, that's, you know, or similarly, if you're in my progressive Bay Area nonprofit sector, which I'm a part of, uh, do you know what, how you have to belong around the Zoom campfire? Pronouns. <laughs> you, better show, you better display your pronouns. <laughs> um, because if you don't, there's like an eyebrow raised. And it's like, oh, you may not belong in this circle, right? Um, so both sides... We have to, we, both red and blue have now, which is completely illogical why that, was, that is now like the marker, right? Um, nothing against pronouns. I'm not, I'm not denigrating the, the use of it, but that it now becomes like, is, this, this tells you whether you're in and out, right? Um, that, 
that's sort of the nature, right? We're looking for cues, and we will, we, our brains and our social brains will look for some ways, like, how do I know you're, you're a part of the us? And that's all been coded now, increasingly, on partisan lines. And then there's a, similarly, again, that brain that's been sort of developed through years out in Savannah, if you are now, think your survival is so tightly identified with this us around the campfire, then you've got a lot in stake for this us to survive. Because your, your, your identity has fused, your identity has merged with this us. So this us has got to survive because if this us goes, then I, I go. My identity has been fused, right? And so that means if there is like suddenly another campfire, that means there's another tribe out there. I, they may be a threat to us. All right, so we're on the scan for thre any threat to this campfire. Right? So, therefore, we're going to view with great suspicion, great fear. Uh, we're going to be wired to, to, uh, for antagonism because we've just been wired like we need the us to survive. And if there's a them out there, that the them could wipe out us. Okay. So this is, the, this is the deep mind structures that have always been placed. It's just not that the partisan mind... Has, has come to define it, right? So the campfires are now colored red or blue. And one way to think about why it's happened, there's a, it's a, there's a complex set of reasons why it's become so, the campfires are now uh, red and blue. So some factors just to note. One, the world actually, I think in some objectively real ways, is kind of scarier. Know, right? You know, we've got, a, we've got climate change. We've got the threat of nuclear war in, from Russia. We've got economic uh, uncertainty ahead of us. And so people in times of uncertainty are going to want to huddle with an us. The, the, it act, times of uncertainty and stress activate that deep sort of campfire mentality, right? So one, that's one reason why we're, we're, we're huddling around looking for, for a, a campfire to huddle around. Two, other campfires that used to distribute out possible gathering places are, being, are dwindling. Right? This is the decline of American civic associations and gatherings that sociologists like Robert Putnam have long written about. There's just a decline of other sports teams, by almost any measure, sports teams, clubs, neighborhood associations. You look at the trends, they're all declining. Right? So there's less places for us to gather Right? And those places, by the way, used to be where you would mix across partisan lines. But that's happening less also because of a big sociological phenomenon known as the big sort. That for, again, complex reasons, increasingly we are sorting ourselves out geographically and even socially by certain same markers of class, race, uh, and, and political identification. And now they're all lining up because we're sorting ourselves out. Right? And then, so when all of your identities start lining up in direction, that makes the us versus them even more powerful. Right? Because more of my different identities are all lining up around this campfire. Right? It's this, and so that, that becomes a really existential like, threat if this campfire doesn't like, survive. Because like, all of my identities, all of my class, economic, education, social beliefs, and so forth, are all lining up on, on, on the color of the campfire. Right? Even if it doesn't, if you, if you step back, it doesn't logically make sense. It's just we're now, are, we're flocking to that, right? So the, it's, the world's a dangerous place. There's less alternative campfires. And the, the partisan one 
is getting kerosene poured over it. Uh, for, again, for a lot of, lot of reasons. Social media is a huge reason, uh, that basically social media is designed to actually push you to, into one camp or another because their business model is, I've got to sort you. <laughs> That's their business model. I've got to figure out how to, so I know which ads and which video, which content to put before you. And it's a very convenient, very easy way for social media to use your political markers, right? Not even in obvious ways, but in subtle ways. Uh, this has been long studied. You read the congressional testimony from the Facebook executive. This is the basic social media strategy, and that has pushed us. It is no accident that you see a rapid mark in polarization, as well as anxiety, which we talked about in my last meeting with, around 2011, 12, and 13. Both polarization and anxiety, you see this hockey, hockey curve. And we know, you know what happened around 2011, 12, or 13. It's when smartphones gained mass adoption. Um, so so we, are, we are all captive to these larger forces that are ultimately hijacking some deep part of our human brain that is part of our human fallenness. Okay, that our, our temptation, to, which is deep wired, to fall into this us versus them construction. So what does this mean for a Christian? What does this mean for me as I'm hearing Christian worship music blaring through the radio of my Uber driver? What does this mean when I'm trying to figure out this intersection of faith and belonging in my family? Right? What does this mean? Well, the good news is this is not a, a foreign situation to the scriptures. It is not a foreign scripture, situation to the church. It is not a foreign situation to God. The Bible, the New Testament especially, and, and, and Jesus' ministry uh, was plopped right into the middle of a polarized, divided world. Because that world also had the same deep mind structures that we have. And that world had the same tendency to fall into us versus them. And the good news and the challenge that the gospel is presenting is there is another mind. There is another mind other than the partisan mind, other than the us versus them mind. And this is the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ. And the mind of Christ, is, it comes up in a few key parts of the Pauline epistles. And each time, it's so interesting the context of when Paul describes the mind of Christ. I, I remember growing up as a Christian, I was like, mind of Christ. I assume that is like, oh, I should just be like, think more like Jesus. The WW, in my, when I grew up, it was the WWJD. Or like, what would Jesus do? Well, what would Jesus think? That's the mind of Christ, right? So I was like, and I always interpreted it as very individualistically, like either privately, like, uh, I should think more pure thoughts because that's what it means to have the mind of Christ. So if I have some lustful thought or angry thought or selfish thought, that's not the mind of Christ. And I think there's some truth to that, okay? Or if it had something to do with relationships, it's like just like my next, my family, my sort of like now, my wife, like, oh, I should be more servant to my wife, serving to my wife because that's what it means to have the mind of Christ. I'm not saying those things aren't true. That is not the original context that Paul uses the mind of Christ. There's three key passages uh, that Paul describes the mind of Christ. Um, so 
Let me pull them up. 1 Corinthians 2.16, Romans 12.2, and then Colossians 3. What's fascinating is in all three of those cases, Paul is not talking about some individual privatized issue or problem that the mind of Christ is supposed to address. In each of those situations, Paul is talking about some division and tribal identity that is happening. So, for instance, 1 Corinthians 2.16, Paul says, But who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Okay, do you know where that, that little verse is sandwiched around? It's sandwiched around all of Paul's sort of critique and challenge and condemnation of how the Corinthian church has fallen into tribal divisions. That one follows Paul, another follows Apollos, right? So the mind of Christ, he's saying, he's like, look, the mind of Christ isn't about that. It doesn't fall into this us versus them defined by some human figure you are following. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Again, we tend to read this very individualistically, and it's true, it applies individualistically. The actual context, Paul is talking about, there should be no divisions in the church. He's concerned about that the mind of Christ, because you have the mind of Christ, you should not be divided in the way that you are. Okay, which is the very immediate verses following Romans 12 too. Then finally, Colossians 3. And this is, this is where I really want to spend a little time. Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are worldly. Now what he means by that is not, don't care about things that are happening on earth. That's not what he means by worldly. Worldly here means like fleshly. The, the part of the, the world that has not been transformed fully by Christ. That's what worldly means in here. He's not saying like, for instance, don't think about politics, don't care about politics. He's saying, don't think about politics through worldly lenses, through worldly categories, through a worldly mind, right? Um, but now, he says, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. Let me read that again and see if, do you hear any of this in our political discourse today? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. He says, put all those away because you've put off your old self, this old mind, this old mindset, put it off with its practices, and instead put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, in your mind, and you, your, your mind is getting reshaped, right? You're getting a new mind when you get Jesus. Right? Renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That, that your mind does not, not have to fall conform to the deep brain structures of human fallenness. There is a deep renewal happening that goes at the very sort of cortical structures of our brains. All right. um, and what does that renewal look like? Here, this, is, this shows you what he means by the mind of Christ. Because this is what the mind of Christ is targeting. Here, there is not... Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free. All of those categories, Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, slave versus free. Those were the us versus them of the first century. Those were the red and blue, right? That's how people got sorted. That's how people got divided. So the part, this partisan mind is not new, okay? It is it's part of human history, existence, human, the fall, and similarly, the Christian response is not new. 
Paul dealt with it in his day. We deal, we're going to deal with it in our day. How? By the renewing of our mind. After the image of its creator, where there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, or uncircumcised, slave or free, red or blue, progressive or conservative. But, the next verse, but Christ is all and in all. But Christ is all and in all. That's the mind of Christ that has been renewed to see that Christ is all and in all. Which means that Christ is the campfire. Christ is all and in all. And, we're, and there is no us versus them. There's only an us. Christ is all and in all. It's all. It's an us. Humanity has been remade into a big us gathered around the true light of the world that dwarfs and outshadows all other campfires. Christ is all and in all. That is the mind of Christ. And the challenge for the church, the challenge for Christians today, is to put on the mind of Christ. Where there is no us versus them, there's only an us. That is the message. That is the message that, of the, that, that I believe is core to the gospel, the good news in our day and age, in this country and in the world, that is increasingly polarized on all lines. Christ is all and in all. That's the message, and the task for us is to renew our own minds, and in the renewal of our mind, how do we develop new practices that actually reflect this new reality, right? Now, there's a number of ways, and a lot of really great creative starting enterprises. I think the Civility Project is a great example of that. Um, we need to start leaning into those, right, and realize the proclamation of the gospel today is Christ is all and in all. It's a direct rebuke to the us versus them. And we need to recognize when we find ourselves slipping into this us versus them mentality, we are stuck in the old mind. We are stuck in that deep fallen mind structure. How do we do this practically? Well, like I said, I, I, I do not have all the answers, but I think there are some starting points for, for each one of us. Uh, I think one thing we ought to start at is we need to be in relationship with, in, in ways that get us out of the big sort, that actually get us out of these campfires. We need to be creative and develop new campfires, right, that actually cut across uh, political lines. Um, so <laughs> this is going to sound silly, but I'm serious. This is why I play pickleball. I think Joseph talked about why I play pickleball. The reason I play pickleball, one, I like it, but two, it's this sport that, uh, does anybody here play pickleball or am I talking nonsense here? <laughs> okay, it's a sport that's a very new sport, but it has a particular ethos to it, does it not, right? It's a very welcoming ethos. It's like built into the ethos, like you, do, you can't turn anybody away. Like even if I'm a top-notch player, like you welcome the new newbies. I love that about that sport because it just, it, it's a welcoming, it mixes people up, right? And so, we just need to look for that. We need to look for, and, and we need to throw ourselves in, into that. My church, we started uh, with a bunch of five uh, guy, uh, guy friends of mine. We started a little pickleball league that we play in a public park, and we go there to play. And, and the reason we go there is because it's just built in to welcome other people, like non-Christians, different ages, different races, and so forth like that. Wherever we find activities that are like that, we need to reinforce them. We need to join them as Christians. We need to support them. 
Okay? What are activities that get us out of the rigid campfires that, that we're in? Two, I think we need to be really careful about what we're feeding our minds with. Okay? Um, look, social media, like I said, is designed to split you into a different campfires. It, it's, it's built into the very structure of social media, at least the way it exists right now. Right? So if you are getting most of your news from doom scrolling through various social media feeds, you're feeding your old mind. It's, that's just, and I'm not sure I've got a better alternative because I know there are benefits to, to social media and benefit, benefits to that. I, all I can tell you is you're feeding your old mind the longer you sp spend on that. And I would encourage you to, are there other ways you can get news? <laughs> are there other ways that you can get news sources? Um, I'd encourage you to read widely. Right? Read, so, so I think the best actually is if you can actually develop an actual human relationship with somebody that thinks differently than you politically. Um, for, you know, you guys know that I'm on this podcast with David French. David and I have sort of merged sort of more closely politically. We used to be quite, uh, he used to be much more conservative than he is now, I would say, or at least along certain lines and, you know, whatever. But my point is, David was like actually the person, why I so treasured my friendship with David was like, Living in the Bay Area, I, he was like, like the one conservative that I talked to regularly. Like I just could, and I maintained that friendship, even though he spouted sometimes things. I'm like, what? Like you believe that? Like even today, like you really think we should? Like you really believe that about guns? Okay, um, but like he's the one person that I know that has like a is like a like a super pro gun, like you know, like a thoughtful pro gun person. I need to talk to those people because I don't have anybody like that in the Bay Area, <laughs> okay? So we need to, if, we could, if God has given you somebody in your life that thinks differently, cultivate that. Cultivate that relationship, which doesn't mean you have to talk about politics all the time, even. But just cultivate that relationship, right? Uh, find other ways to be together, and then over time, you'll realize, okay, you know, I don't need to split everything along these lines. Um, then finally, I would just say... Uh, we need to pray. <laughs> this is a spiritual battle. This is a spiritual battle between the mind of Christ and the partisan mind. And therefore, our prayer is part of our renewal of our mind. Uh, which, by that I mean one very specific prayer practice would be to pray for your enemies. Right? <laughs> that we are commanded to do so. And there is something about when you pray for your enemies, it lessens the us versus them. It's hard to maintain a very rigid us versus them when you're praying for the them. Right? Um, so look for ways that we can adopt as part of our regular liturgies even, a prayer for the them, whatever that them is in your life. Ultimately, though, I want to encourage us to take heart. This is not a new challenge it is not a challenge beyond God. It is not a challenge beyond the gospel. The gospel was designed for this challenge. The gospel in its first century was designed precisely as a counterpoint to the, to the us versus them mentality of the day, and it is still today. And our task before us is to take up that invitation. Christ is all and in all. This video podcast is a production of George Fox Digital. To find more material like this, you can subscribe to George Fox Talks on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Our team really appreciates your feedback in the form of likes, comments, and reviews, and we'd really love to hear what you think. To sign up for our weekly email list and to keep up to date with the latest episodes and publications, you can check us out on the web at georgefox.edu talks. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.